Um, so I'm Sandy. You guys all know me. Um, I think you guys were the only ones that weren't here last week. You were here last week, yeah. And there's David. Hey, David. Come on in. Um, so last week, I kind of went over a recap of um, Mars Hill and the podcast and just the abusive church environment that had kind of um, developed in um, Seattle. So Don and I were there for six years, uh, right towards the beginning of the church founding. Um, and I talked last week kind of about the impact of the theology. I'll let them finish. I'll let them get their breakfast and then we'll start. <laughs> That's okay. There's still people sneaking their way in. Start over again in a minute. Have a seat. Come on in. Um, so last week I was talking about um, our experience at Mars Hill. Um, Don and I were there for six years. We uh, were early members of the church. We watched it grow from, you know, between 150 to several thousand um, in six years um, and became a multi-site locations with streaming. Um, there was a lot of things that if you haven't listened to the Rise and Fall of Mars Hill podcast, I would recommend um, just to understand more broadly of all of the uh, sociological impacts that are kind of were playing on the effect of the church. There was a lot to do with the business model and change of technology and kind of growth strategies and um, even the history of evangelicalism that was playing into um, the rise of the church. This week I want to focus a little bit more on um, church trauma and um, talking about what a church, toxic church environment looks like. Um, what I experienced personally was really a toxic church environment due to bad theology that was really undermining my own personhood as a woman. And I shared some of that last week. If you didn't get a chance to listen, it's online. You can listen to that. Um, I recently was listening to a different podcast called Viral Jesus, and um, the Heather Thompson Day was interviewing Sheila Weiss Rowe, and she has a master's degree in counseling and has written several books, including Healing Racial Trauma. She has over 25 years in trauma therapy, and um, she was making a distinction on that podcast between the differences of the terms a toxic culture or a toxic church environment versus trauma. And I just want to make sure we have some terminology straight. Um, so trauma is the result of, can be a result of a single, singular event or an ongoing series of events. Um, trauma is actually more diagnosed in terms of um, the bodily response that you have to uh, a, a bad experience. Yeah. right? Some people are not traumatized by very traumatic events. Exactly. So trauma is very individual. The response that you have is um, really depends on how much prior trauma you have coming into a situation. So if you have had a lot of um, 
difficult situations, then something small can create that bodily response in you that to somebody else seems like no big deal. Um, so there is an ongoing nature of it. Um, and again, it really depends on your own physiology even sometimes, the kind of response that you have. Um, some signs of trauma can be, um, you know, uh, it's all sort of a sense of fear that it, your body is responding like you're in danger, even if you're in a safe, otherwise situation. So it can be a, your heart racing, your palms sweating, you um, want to fight or flight. So you might find yourself getting unreasonably angry or you want to like run away and hide. In severe cases, people disassociate where they stop like even being present and responding to you um, because they just cannot deal with the input that is coming at them because of severe situations. Um, Dr. Yadav, Samir Yadav, in um, his two uh, talks that he gave in Encounter all talked a lot about trauma. Um, so I, if you haven't listened to those, I'd recommend listening to that. Um, I'd also recommend episode 20 of The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill talks a lot about kind of specifically church trauma and some um, healing um, methodology and kind of uh, indicators about that. So I'm not going to focus so much on the trauma piece, but on the toxic culture that can create um, trauma in people. Um, toxic culture, as opposed to trauma, is describing situations that, like breathing in toxic chemicals, can over time and with repetition um, create harm in people. So just like if you breathe the uh, toxic air over a long time, you might end up with lung cancer. Similarly, um, if you're in a toxic culture or environment where you're repeatedly having your humanity undermined or you're watching people make immoral choices or asking you to compromise your own moral framework, that that can um, build up in you and create trauma. And again, like we said, that you can... If you are coming into a toxic church culture or other culture with um, a, a lot of previous culture, you're actually going to identify it sooner than somebody who's healthy. Um, so it was interesting to me at Mars Hill in particular. I had friends who had had a lot of trauma who came to Mars Hill and they would visit once and they were like, no, thank you. I'm out. Yes. You know? <laughs> And I was like, oh, what's wrong with you? You can't handle the hard teaching? Oh. <laughs> and I would judge them. And meanwhile, I should have been listening to them um, and realizing that they were having, you know, they couldn't even articulate what they thought was wrong with it until they, they were just experiencing it. Um, so often toxic spiritual environments, um, the justification for them are often what we would normally think is the solution. We normally think the solution to our problems is Jesus and the Bible. And yet in toxic spiritual environments, people offer the justification for the, that abuse as Jesus and the Bible. And so that can be really just a mess, like when you're just being told because of these biblical ideals that you should do something that is um, making you severely uncomfortable over time. Um, 
the toxic environments are often a church if it's a spiritual environment, but it can also be other institutions that claim some sort of spiritual authority. So we've seen a whole slew of organizations have, um, you know, the Church 2 movement and some of these other things that have been going on in the broader culture. Dave Ramsey um, is a you know, financial advisor who claims that he's doing it God's way. He's had some moral failures. There's just been a whole series of these things coming to light where people have been in Christian situations where it's come out that they've been, um, it's been a toxic spiritual environment, um, Christian camps, things like this. So as we, as people who claim to follow Christ, we can't just put our head in the sand and say, oh, that's so bad that that's happening out there. We really need to look at what's going on so that we can learn from it, um, mourn with our fellow sisters and brothers in Christ um, and try and take steps to make sure that we are not also creating cultures like that here at Free Methodist or other organizations that we live and work in. Um, Because the potential for abuse when people claim spiritual um, authority is just so much greater. I mean, Starbucks could be a toxic work environment, (laughs) but they're not telling you the plan for your life. (laughs) Well, they are. If you have pumpkin spice lattes every day in October, your life will be swell. But (laughs) they are not claiming you are going to go to Starbucks Nirvana if you buy a latte every day and um, that you are doing something correct morally. Um, So these other organizations, though, um, are claiming special authority, special truth and knowledge and that's where it becomes um, so much more abusive to, to people in that environment because we open ourselves up. When we go into a situation and we start asking big questions about why am I here on earth and what is the purpose of life? How should I interact with other humans and treat the environment? All of those questions are such um, loaded questions that there's such potential for harm. And honestly, in some ways, I feel like I don't have the, the expertise. Like, you don't ask the sick person <laughs> how to get well. You ask a doctor. And I feel more like a patient than um, a physician in this conversation. But I can. Um, yeah, I've had some healing. And so I can describe how the Lord did that for me and things to look out for. Um, But if you personally have experienced situations like this or know people that have, I would really strongly recommend finding um, professional help, um, some spiritual guidance, uh, but even therapy of different kinds so that you can get um, well too. And um, I am not an expert on all of those things. But... um, And the indicators, again, just so that we're clear, can be bodily responses, that feeling of being unsafe, anger, um, just any time you are mindful that your body is responding in a way that is out of step with the circumstances, that can be an indicator that you could possibly need um, more help. For myself, I still run into situations, like even knowing, I didn't get to hear Jake's sermon this morning, but even knowing he was preaching uh, on 1 Peter 3 this morning, yeah, I started like finding my heart rate like going up. And and I thought, Lord, in your sovereignty, I'm in here teaching on this, and he was in there teaching on that. 
Um, Lord have mercy. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure he did a great job, which um, I know um, and trust our church as a result of many um, years of healing in that process. But I have to say that it still does make me nervous because I experience such a toxic culture that um, undermined my ability as a woman to speak and to um, even as a wife, it was harmful to our marriage over time. Um, so these gender roles were a big part of the plan of Mars Hill and um, some of the lasting kind of pain for a lot of the people that were there um, had to do with some of that bad teaching. The podcast talks about that a little bit and focuses on a whole bunch of other things, but I think the, the bad teaching surrounding the nature of God's love and forgiveness and, and God's bringing of freedom to all people did more harm than um, a lot of other aspects of the Mark being, uh, you know, emotionally abusive with the staff. Um, I don't think that would have been as harmful if it wasn't also kind of rotting out their marriages at the same time. Um, I also feel like I was fortunate compared to a lot of my friends because I had a lot of um, foundation. I was somebody who wasn't super traumatized prior to Mars Hill. Um, I grew up in a family that loved and adored me. I'd had really strong biblical teaching on my identity in Christ. Um, there's a book called The Search for Significance um, that is kind of fallen out of fashion right now, but I think everybody could use it, um, where I memorized that I am deeply loved and totally forgiven, chosen by God, totally accepted and complete in Christ. And those truths and the biblical understanding of them um, laid a foundation for me that I knew was true even when I started hearing other um, teaching later. Yeah, it did help that my husband was not too big of a jerk. That's a nice way to put it. <laughs> you know, he, um, my husband actually resisted the whole macho guy thing and never really fit with Mars Hill as a result. Um, but he also would say that he was happy to let, you know, it go along and benefit from it, which is part of our problem, right, as church members, is that when we are benefiting from something, that it's too easy to be quiet. And that can be in racial areas as well as um, the gender issues. When we're given power that is not fair and we're benefiting from it, we have to, like, really purposefully try and take it, um, give that up and question and challenge the structures that are um, creating that. Um, so we also knew that we were going to be leaving from the beginning, which helped um, kind of keep one foot out the door because Dawn was there for grad school. So we were in Seattle, we knew for a limited amount of time and having that kind of end that we would eventually leave kind of protected us. Last week, I talked about some of the red flags that um, are in a toxic um, spiritual environment, and I made a kind of a long list that I went through, and I was thinking about those, and I mentioned already that it's complicated because there is biblical justification for a lot of those just the, the um, toxic red flags. And so I want to look at four of those again today and look at the Bible verses and kind of then use those as examples of how to untangle some of those things and have the process that I went through to like, okay, here's what they're saying. Here's what 
I feel like the Bible also says and kind of how do you take those things apart. So um, the first one is, is there a plan for your life being offered that is all-consuming? Well, like I said, that could be a red flag of a toxic environment, which it is. And yet, does Jesus offer a plan for your life that is (laughs) all-consuming? Very much so, right? Um, He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. He says, come follow me. Take up your cross daily. Like, die to yourself and come follow, come after me. So this is, this is the justification that you have to be all in um, because God has this plan for your life. Mars Hill extended that plan a little bit to include um, men should work, women should stay home and raise children, and there's no other way to do it. You should buy a house even if you can't afford it, and we're going to take over the city. And that was sort of the, like, the plan. Um, but it was often presented mixed up with these scriptures about the, the like all-consuming call of Christ. Um, and we have this message to pass on to other people, right? Like it's a message that is transformative and life-changing, that your whole that we're all in. Um, so how do you communicate that and how are you careful with the people that you're even telling about Christ? so that they're not being invited into something that is abusive or could make them open to a toxic environment. So what I think the call of Christ ultimately calls us into is more freedom. And so if you keep that overarching um, message that it is for freedom that Christ set us free and stand firm then and don't take up again the yoke of slavery, Galatians says, um, So the message of the church and any um, spiritual environment that is calling you to something that is all-consuming should ultimately be calling you to freedom. And freedom in Christ, freedom to follow God wherever he wants you to go. Um, And what that looks like for Daisy is going to look different for Annika. (laughs) You know, and uh, then it looks different for me than it does for my son Theo. That... um, the freedom that comes with Christ should give full dignity to all people and um, should enable you to have power to follow him. Um, anything lesser than that, any plan that is compromising to that freedom is not the true gospel. So that's where you have to find yourself. If you feel like somebody is telling you, giving you a message that is limiting what God has for you, then you need to ask yourself, is this really the true gospel of Jesus Christ that leads us to a place where there is no slave, no free, no Jew, no Greek, no male, no female, but all are one in Christ. So um, the plan for your life is not known by someone else that they have the secret knowledge of. Um, and that, that makes it scarier. It's easier to fall into something when somebody else tells you how to live and what to do and When you're confused, it's nice to be like, okay, this is the plan. This is what we're doing. Um, But ultimately, uh, you have freedom and agency to follow the Holy Spirit's leading in your life. Um, The next red flag that I was talking about was, um, are you regularly excusing unethical or borderline behavior for the sake of the gospel or because so many people are being saved? Um, We often hear those, like, 
framework of justifying or saying that a ministry must be good or healthy because so many people are being saved. Um, and the scripture behind it in 1 Corinthians 9, 22 and 23, Paul says, I have become all things to all people so that by all means possible I might save some. And I do this for the sake of the gospel that I may share in its blessings. So this is the motivation of Paul, and so that often can get taken into church environments to justify something that is maybe not so great. And you go, but there's so many people being saved, maybe it's okay. But if you have red flags that you're saying maybe, <laughs> maybe not also, right? Um, and the other thing about that is that Paul was making a statement about what he has chosen for himself. He was a leader. He was a Roman citizen. He had power and agency in those circumstances. And he was deciding that for himself, that he would suffer things for the sake of the gospel, that he would compromise and make himself fit so that people would be saved. He was not telling everyone else, you must do this. He said, this is what I am doing. And he was not telling people, oh, you must do this, but I'm actually not going to do that. Um, I, I don't know why this stuck out to me when I was re-listening to the podcast. There was a, 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 one of the people that worked for Mark, they had gone to um, Turkey or something to um, film some videos or something. This was long after we left. And um, they pulled up to this really fancy resort and the guys were thinking, oh, great, we're going to stay here tonight. No, nope, Mark got out and went and stayed in their super high-end five-star resort, and the rest of them stayed in a hotel that was so moldy that they like couldn't sleep at night. And so <laughs> suffering all things for the gospel <laughs> was asked of everybody else, but not necessarily of um, the leaders. Um, the consequence of people hearing the gospel is, as Christians, we believe, can be life and death. Like we say that people need to need Jesus or they were going to, there are issues of eternal salvation and damnation on, on the line. And so those can be really dangerous, powerful motivators to um, persuade people and abuse people because the stakes are so high. Um, so is there a time and a place for covering over sin? I'm saying watch out for people that are telling you to cover over sin. I would say yes. I Love covers over a multitude of sins. It's also in the scripture. And in my own family, are there times when people do things to me in my, where I'm like, okay, they're hungry and tired. I'm not going to make an issue out of that for the sake of the gospel and because of Jesus? Absolutely. We could not live together in harmony if we never covered over sin, right? So then how do we... Like, that's potentially abusive. And like so figuring out those dynamics can be difficult. Um, so that's, again, I want to focus on the agency and the power of the people in, the in those situations. If you are in a spiritual situation, a church, an institution, even a family can do this if you're a Christian family. Um, and if you regularly see patterns of someone with more power asking the people that with less power, the congregant, the employee, the child, the spouse, um, to hide a sinful action or behavior 
if the person with the power is saying, oh, don't tell anybody, that's for the sake of the gospel. We don't want people to think badly about Jesus. Um, and honestly, like that can be a powerful motivator because you, we think all these people are watching us and the hypothetical people out there might see and think badly about Jesus. Well, that could lead to their eternal damnation. Like, and that's where that can, the potential for abuse comes in because we think that we're doing something good for Jesus by hiding this thing or not bringing like bad stuff to light. And yet again, we have to ask ourselves, what gospel are we, we bringing to people? Because um, that's not the true gospel. If the true gospel requires us to hide sin and shame people and put people out of power, then it's not calling people into the gospel. What those people are seeing is not the truth. That's the thing that bothered Jesus the most, the hypocrisy in the church. Amen. The hypocrisy in the church. Um, Jesus spoke about it. Um, so if you are in a position where you feel like you have agency and equality um, and God is calling you to forgive somebody, by all means, forgive them. And there is a biblical model for that process of going to somebody and speaking the truth in love. If they don't listen to you, you bring somebody else. If they still don't listen to you, you bring the elders of the church and they still don't listen to you, then the, the person can be sent out from the community. And that means that you could break off relationship with somebody if after you have presented this problem to them and they are still not repentant in some way, then you can break relationship for your own protection. Um, so at Mars Hill, this looked like early choices where they um, covered over things that Mark was doing wrong because so many people were coming um, to the church. He would call out, you know, say unloving jokes and borderline things in his sermons, and nobody was holding him accountable. And he was getting laughs, and then later downloads and clicks. And um, so later that led to much more extreme abusive treatment of the staff behind closed doors. So if somebody is a public figure and they're saying something kind of mildly unloving up here, you can bet that behind closed doors, it's even worse. Um, it also looked like early on, uh, Mark's first book he wrote, uh, Mark Driscoll, it was, um, I can't remember the name of it. Nope, that was the second book. His first one, he was not careful with some of his citations. And then um, the, he would, somebody that he quoted uh, wrongly without citing was somebody that he knew and the guy kind of said, oh, well, you can just buy me a gift card. Like, it doesn't really matter. And so he kind of got away with not um, citing these things correctly. Well, then it, when it, his second book, Real Marriage, came out, he hired, a, and I don't think this made the podcast, he hired a publication um, or a publicity agency to buy up the first 2,000 copies of the books. Was it in the podcast? so that it would shoot up to the top of the New York Times bestseller list. And he had, was getting all of the royalties for the book, and he used church money, the donations of the people that were meant to go for the church, to hire the publicity agency and to buy those books. So that kind of moral, like, you know, you let go of little things. Oh, maybe you made a mistake. There were a lot of people working on the book, whatever, but you don't hold that accountability early on. 
um, leads to future things that are much worse. Um, yeah. Yeah, no, uh-uh, because, um, yeah, the toxic environment. She, uh, I don't know how much of her own story she has shared. I, Grace is a whole nother story. I was good friends with her, and it, it, that breaks my heart. She's definitely, like, trapped in a situation, even if she wouldn't say it. Um, so... Just to remind us that Jesus um, calls us to be people of grace and forgiveness, and that is a situation that is ripe for abuse. Um, so we have to be wise about that. That it, um, we have a duty in our communities of faith to constantly look for those who might be suffering abuse because of these calls towards forgiveness. Um, the Bible talks about taking care of widows and orphans and the foreigners living in our midst because those were the people in that, that time that were more, most likely to not have agency and power that might get abused by a situation. The widows getting overlooked in the distribution, and so they came up with the deacon plan. Um, and so today that means like we safeguard who works with our children downstairs. We're really careful with who spends time with the youth. We are um, also look out for historically marginalized people in our community and listen to them, just like I should have listened to my friend who came in and knew Mark was abusive from the just one time. And I was like, oh, what do you know? I think he's fine. <laughs> um, that's where the people that um, have been marginalized or know that they might get abused, they have a voice that we should be hearing and listening to um, and looking out for people. Um, okay, the next one is um, any time a church or an institution is controlling the message very strongly to be on brand, at every moment uh, and justifying that because we want the most people to hear the gospel and we want to um, uh, just make sure we're doing our best work for Christ. Um, and those things are true. And again, this is where it can be confusing, right? We want to do our very best work for Christ. We want things to look good and be well done. We want to make sure that we're communicating clearly um, and that people can hear about Jesus. But, um, that control over who gets to participate and the um, who gets to teach and what what's being said and if, is it polished enough um, can also be a big flag that there's a problem. So I even was like the fact that um, Colleen took this passage this week and left town. I was like, <laughs> and to me that was actually like just an indicator that she didn't have to have control over it. You know, like. <laughs> That she was like, okay, yeah, this is a complicated passage. Jake can handle it. The Holy Spirit can work through Jake just as much as he can work through me. And that, to me, was actually like a sign of beauty and health in the, <laughs> um, in the congregation. Um, because I can tell you this, Mark Driscoll would never let somebody else teach on something that was like so foundational to his message of your plan for your life is all about your family roles. Um, 
he used to say that uh, he had a high view of God and the scripture and a low view of people. And so he, and so he, that, and you'll hear this in other places, that they have this high view of God in the Bible. God is holy. His word is so important. And I have a very low view of people. They're sinful. And so they can't be trusted, whatever. Ironically, right. <laughs> exactly, right? So ironically, I have come to see how letting go of control has such a higher view of God, right? That you believe that the Holy Spirit can work in anybody. And it actually reflects a lower view of yourself, right? That you are not the only person <laughs> that is necessary. And it's actually um, leaders who raise up others and let them make mistakes and let them um, have a chance. Let me sit up here and speak. I could say anything. <laughs> um, reflects a faith in God and God's work among the people that is so refreshing to me after being in a situation where there was so much control, making sure um, only the right people that had been appointed could speak or participate. Um, God can bring truth to people despite faulty vessels. And um, as, as members of the, the body of Christ, we believe in the priesthood of the believer that the Holy Spirit comes to each of us and anoints us and makes us able to um, speak and teach and understand God's word, that we can participate together um, in the life of Christ. Um, okay, the last one I want to look at is um, looking out for people who claim authority structures that you must submit to in the church. So today's sermon would be right in that line of um, wives submitting to your husband children submitting, um, churches that regularly talk about submitting to the elders. That's a big red flag. Now, but there are biblical um, passages like they looked at last week in um, talking about uh, the slaves submit to your masters and wives submit to your husband. This is where the, it gets complicated, right? Because the Bible does say that. So how do we wrestle with those things in such a way that brings the most humanity and life to, and agency and power to the most freedom to the most people? Um, that can be a vastly different environment than when people, other people, especially the people that have the authority and the control are the ones telling you to submit. And, and then it gets even more dangerous when you have so convinced all the people that are submitting that they go around telling everybody else to submit <laughs> like so we had all these women's bible studies where we were taught to be you know to submit and be quiet and treat your husband like he's god because that's what sarah did and what's funny to me i just thought of this this week was um that passage holds up sarah as the ideal and yet sarah is the one who did not trust god she was the one who like called hagar Gave him to Abraham. Like, we still have tension in the Middle East. Thank you, Sarah. <laughs> um, so everybody are mixed bags, I would say, for Sarah's sake. But, um, you know, this idea that um, there is one way to live out your marriage uh, is, and that there's always one person who needs to submit is just wrong. I mean, the Bible says we are to submit to one another in love, that we're to put all people... Um, ahead of ourselves for the sake of the, 
gospel, but that's only if you have the same equality and agency. If somebody else is has authority over you and they're the ones telling you that you have to submit and they're asking you to submit to something that's wrong, um, get out of there. <laughs> um, so Galatians 3, I quoted part of this earlier, um, is... 26 through 28, it says, you are all sons of God. And it says sons because that is the legal position um, in their society, that you are the heir, like the, the, the head of the family. So you are all sons um, of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you were baptized into Christ and have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. I also read a great quote from William Willman. Willeman. Uh, he wrote a book called This We Believe that's on Wesleyan theology, and I'm reading it for my theology doctoring class for the church. Um, and he said, To reiterate, all we really know for sure about God is that which is revealed in Jesus Christ. So all we really know about, for sure about God is that which is revealed in Jesus Christ. Does what you know of Jesus in his interaction with his disciples suggest that his main concern was control? And I just love that because the, <laughs> here he was God and he comes down and he is not like t- controlling what they do. They're all over the place. <laughs> like, and, you know, he's sending them out and they're making mistakes and coming back. And he's like, has a ragtag group of people with him. He is not on brand. <laughs> like, like, um, so we see from just these four types of spiritual passages, um, God having a plan for your life, doing all things for the sake of the gospel, controlling what is taught to guard against false teaching, and make sure the gospel goes out, and verses on submission, that Jesus and the Bible can be weaponized um, to control people and to limit their freedom. And Jesus and his word can be used to bring that freedom and that life and can be the solution. Um, A good example, I think, is thinking about the slaveholders in our country who taught religion to people and they thought that if they taught the enslaved people religion that they would obey and so they were careful and they only taught them slaves obey your masters and um, these things but then as they actually heard the full gospel they also learned about Moses and they were given the keys to what would eventually give them freedom yeah let my people go and They learned about Jesus who broke down racial barriers with Samaritans, who spoke to women when other people wouldn't have, who had a woman disciple. can learn about Junia. Um, They also saw Jesus as being lynched on a cross, just like their peoples of their community were being lynched. And there were seeds of hope in the scripture that eventually led to the movement that broke down um, slavery and and then ultimately broke down and resulted in the Civil Rights Amendment. Um, That has been true for me, too. Those same kinds of seeds of hope. Being taught that you should have a high view of the scripture. Mark meant it in one way, but I learned that and 
it's been true in my life as I've continued to wrestle with the word of God and look at these different applications and not just go, oh, I don't like that and write it out, but kind of actually go to the scripture and struggle with, well, what did it mean in context? Where, what is life-giving still in this? What did Jesus mean? What's his overarching message to the church? Um, sometimes we're going to be presented with scripture or teaching that is hard for us to understand, hard for us to accept, um, sometimes it can be for you particularly a straight up toxic depending on whatever situation you're coming to it from um, and it, depending on what kind of literal application the presenter is presenting that scripture to you in um, so what do we do when it can be so confusing a passage that God has used over and over with me um, is from John chapter 6. This is kind of long, but I want to read the whole thing because it's, um, I think it's important for understanding this. Then Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. But as I told, as I told you, you have seen me, and still you do not believe. All those the Father gives to me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never drive away. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I shall lose none of those he has given me, but raise them up at the last day. For my father's will is that everyone who looks to the son and believes shall have eternal life, and I will raise them up on the last day. At this, the Jews began to grumble about him, and because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven, they said, isn't this Jesus? Joseph's kid? No. Isn't, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How can he now say, I came down from heaven? Stop grumbling among yourselves, Jesus answered. No one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws them, and I will raise them up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard the father and learned from him comes to me. No one has seen the Father except the one who is from God. Only he has seen the Father. And very truly, I tell you, no one, I tell you, the one who believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your ancestors ate manna in the wilderness, and yet they died. But here is the bread that comes down from heaven, which anyone may eat and not die. I am the living bread that comes down from heaven. Whoever eats this bread will live forever. This bread is my flesh, which I give you for the life of the world. Then the Jews began to argue sharply among themselves. How can this man give us his flesh to eat? Jesus said to them, Very truly, I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you will have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise them up at the last day. For my flesh is real food and my blood is real drink. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me and I in them. Just as the living Father sent me and I live because the Father, because of the Father, so the one who feeds on me will live forever because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. Your ancestors ate manna and died, but whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. 
He said this while teaching in the synagogue at Capernaum. On, many, on hearing this, many of his disciples said, This is hard teaching. Who can accept it? Aware that his disciples were grumbling about this, Jesus said to them, Does this offend you? Then what if you see the Son of Man ascend to where he was before? The Spirit gives life and the flesh counts for nothing. The words I have spoken to you, they are full of spirit and life. Yet there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus had known from the beginning which of them would believe and who would betray him. He went on to say, this is why I told you, no one can come to me unless the Father has enabled them. From this time, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. You do not want to leave too, do you? Jesus asked the twelve. And Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and know that you are the Holy One of God. So I don't claim to understand this passage entirely. It is hard teaching. And people left because it was hard teaching. Um, And I also know that there's a lot of pain that can come through misinterpreting hard teaching or difficult to understand teaching in the Bible. And that can be disorienting and soul-killing when people present it in the wrong, wrong way. It can cause trauma in the body. But God has used this passage in my life because whenever I wanted to leave Christ or leave the church, I found that I was still hungry. I still wanted the bread of life. I still kept coming back to Jesus and saying, Lord, to whom shall I go? You alone hold the words of eternal life. And every time I feel like it's too much or I can't figure it out, those, that, the Holy Spirit brings those words to mind. And I resound with Peter that, whom shall I go? Lord, you hold the words of eternal life. Jesus warned there's going to be a lot of false teaching. Yep, there is a lot of false teaching. where it's abusive in a church environment to use fear and that that but like another, another level another, another approach to, to, get, to grab, people grab people's emotions, emotions. yeah but we talk about the persecution of the church in other countries right and so the church can be persecuted here so I think, yeah. I think it is so, but I think we need to be aware that it so, so that I don't think just because someone is saying something doesn't mean it's false. I think that 
Okay, let me um, wrap up what I was going to... Can we? And this gives them an opportunity to do the the uh, Christian nationalism. Can we finish this discussion offline? Um, <laughs> that one's a hard one, but it, it, we do have to be careful in church of what people, what the motivations that are being offered um, uh, to tell people and get them to behave in certain ways, and what gospel they're being called to is like more freedom in America the gospel or is more freedom in Christ the gospel so we want to make sure that we're centering ourselves on who Jesus is Um, so and thinking about who Jesus was and how he interacted with people on earth um, he was a confusing character too so he was gentle and loving with the marginalized and those without power he included people that might otherwise not get to come in um but he could be harsh with the religiously proud and even, those. Even warn us, think that I come to bring peace. I tell you, I come not to bring peace, but, but a, a sword. sword to divide everybody up. Mm-hmm. And he was concerned that he, he wasn't concerned with driving people away when his teaching was hard. He wasn't <laughs> trying to like keep the brand and get the numbers and, you know. Um, John said his winnowing fork is in his hand. Yep. So Jesus knows what it is um, to suffer at the hands of the powerful, too. So at the end of his life uh, on earth, ultimately, he was crucified by the religiously powerful and then raised to life. And ironically, he was raised to life so that he could undo the power of that very sin. So when people ask me, like, how did you kind of come out of that religious abuse? I can look at Jesus and see that he was the one who actually suffered that abuse and then overcame it um, ultimately by rising from the dead and gives us the power by the Holy Spirit to have freedom and overcome those things. So I want to pray for us uh, that we would be a community that um, would offer peace and healing for people that have had these experiences and that we would be wise as we go forward. And then I'll answer some questions, but let me pray. Father God, thank you for sending your son, Jesus. Thank you that he was willing to um, gently and humbly uh, endure religious abuse and a toxic um, environment that ultimately led to his death, but that, Lord, you raised him from the dead that there would be power to overcome even the sin and the toxic spiritual environments. And we pray for anyone in our um, lives and in our church community, community that have suffered spiritual abuse. Father, bring healing. And we pray that you would guard our church, that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear and wisdom so that we can see um, where things might be toxic even here. We feel like things are healthy, but Lord, you know the heart of those, um, the weakest and the most vulnerable among us. Help us, Lord, to um, walk fully into your freedom that you brought um, by coming to earth. We love you and we are thankful for the freedom and the joy to be here together. In Christ's name, amen. Does anybody have any last-minute questions, Marcel? Questions? Yeah. Um, 
So it, he started the church in 1996, and we, Don and I arrived in like 98. Um, uh, then we left in 2005. 2006 was sort of, they had like this, the Easter, I think it was Easter 2006, they had, they rented out like the biggest stadium in town and filled the whole thing. And at that point, Mark was like, um, basically said, been there, done that, I've reached Seattle, and started shifting all of his attention to his online ministry. And so some people point to that sort of being like one of the first turning points. I think it was a little bit before that. Like if you're so motivated by that you're going to rent out Safeco Field to mm. like, <laughs> you know, pre- I don't know. So there was like nine years where people were flourishing or yeah, well, realizing well, yeah, and we were, I mean, he wasn't really, his message really changed. Like, he was a communication major. So once he realized that this message of your marital roles and how to do family was, like, the thing that sold, and he published Real Marriage, and, like, that became his new gospel, basically. Like, that was his shtick. But he, uh, he's actually still doing it. He has this, his church in Arizona is doing Real Family right now. My husband looked it up because he was like, I wonder what he's up to. <laughs> uh, but then he's still doing that same kind of thing. Um, so I think once he made that shift and uh, became like um, realized kind of the extent of the wealth and uh, that you can get to and mega churches, like he started going on the conference circuit and um, in the podcast, some people that were with him were like, Jesse, who was his communication person, was like, oh, it's like that, is it? Like, he could see Mark have this moment where he was like, oh, I can ride around in limos and do this, you know, other thing, which is not really the gospel. I think prior to that, like, especially before Mike Gunn left, Mike Gunn was one of the original founders, and it really was kind of a ragtag group of young people who were trying to figure out church and do it differently and spread the gospel. And there was a lot of truth and life there. Um, but as things had to get more on brand and more controlled and more the, you know, blah, 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 it, things just got increasingly um, out of control. Biz. Yeah. Yeah. The business. This, er, yeah. You all, you told me it's not like Mark, yeah and especially like I like I said last week and just mentioned he being a communications major like those were his tools and that was like what he was gonna fall back into um, was you know like how to you know spread the message and maximize it and sort of those business models versus um you know really caring for individuals and thinking about theology and building church um so it matters what your pastor's education and framework is um so so he, he didn't have any, he didn't go to seminary he just communications yep he bragged about it all the time too how he never went to seminary <laughs> Um, but he was just enlightened. So yeah. Well, 
I mean, there's many, many people in the church today that think that you just need a Bible in one hand and can go out and, and a willingness in the other, which there is. And again, there is some truth to that, right? Right? The priesthood of the believer and that, like, and that's where it's complicated. Yeah. yeah. So. Given guidelines to the church in Ephesus, that, that you know, had very enthusiastic people, but people were going astray because they didn't have the proper doctrine. Right, and didn't know, weren't being called to the true gospel. So. The early church, like, there's all that fighting about it, heresies, and we wonder if we kind of laugh at them, but it's like, it's a real problem. Yeah, well, it's still a problem. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. All right, I just want to do a plug really fast. If you haven't been in the service, Pastor Jake's sermon, I think, is a case study on what to do yeah. with difficult passages. passages. Yeah, yeah. So. exactly. I knew he would handle it well. Yeah. yeah. So, well, thanks for coming, you guys. Yeah. Thanks,